Welcome to Apocryphal Australia, where we present stories about Australia's past that highlight the obscure, the unsubstantiated and or the fanciful. These are tales of people, places and events that have been hitherto overlooked. So we're going to research them until the cows come home and then we'll present them to you. It's a job that needs doing and we're the ones to do it. Welcome everyone to episode 7 of season 2 of Apocryphal Australia. My name is Michael Pryor. And my name is Stephen Higgins. Now Stephen, the reaction to my introducing our audience to some of the objects that we've accumulated over the years here at Apocryphal Australia headquarters, well the reaction has been heartwarming. Anticipating our mailbag a little, Jaden Creek of Skezers Ridge, WA, wrote saying that the story behind the clock in our office in episode 5 was the most interesting clock story he'd ever heard. While Hayden Esterhouse of Tantavy Vic says that the stapler I introduced in episode 6 has made him look at his stapler in an entirely new light, wondering about its backstory. Thanks everyone, and to continue the sharing of our collection of interesting and apocryphal objects, something that sits on my desk here at Apocryphal Australia headquarters doesn't really have a name. It was sent to us anonymously, and the accompanying letter said that it was found while snorkelling off the coast of northern New South Wales. It's an odd thing about the size of a dinner plate, and our anonymous friend says that underneath the ocean encrustation it's made of what he calls junk opal not not valuable at all listeners out there i'm not sure if you're familiar with the gears and cogs and wheels of that 2000 year old greek object called the antikythera the purpose of which has been much argued over but what we have here at apocryphal australia headquarters can only be described as a close cousin to that extraordinary object In any case, it makes a very good executive desk ornament. Stephen, that's all I've got in my introductory palaver. Have you got anything to add here? I haven't got anything to adhere to the palaver, as you so nicely call it, but I have got some palaver of my own that I'll include at the end of of this episode, I think. Excellent. Let's save it up. So... Are you ready to jump straight into your first story for this episode? I'm ready, willing and able. Today I'm, I'm, I'm actually, again, taking a leaf out of your book. I'm dealing with people. All my uh, pieces today are, are dealing with notable individuals. And I'm going to start with Robert Less, who was born in 1938 and died in 1988. Robert Less was born in the memorable summer of 1938 in Watnow, a small town in the west of Queensland. The drought hit hard that year, as did the floods, bushfires, frosts, snowstorms, typhoons, tropical cyclones, earthquakes and many other meteorological and natural phenomena. Robert, or Rob as he came to be known, soon made his presence felt in the small town of his birth. He could often be seen delivering papers on his paper round and collecting empty bottles to resell. This was despite the fact that, given most of the town's population were flying fly-out unemployed, there was only the one house. The fact that the only house in town was the one where he lived did not deter young Robert and his small business was soon a thriving concern. However, the paper shortage that hit all of Australia during the Second World War 
soon brought Robert's empire crashing down, but it also uncovered Robert's hidden talent. When asked how he felt about the paper shortage, Robert is reputed to have replied, when there is no paper, you can't very well collect empty bottles. No one knew what he meant. Little did the townsfolk of what now realise that Rob was just beginning. At the time of his death in 1988, Robert had contributed a startling 1,178 new sayings, catchphrases and proverbs into the English language, few of which made any sense whatsoever. Who can recall without prompting his stunning It's a Funny Old Carpet when asked to comment on the falling wheat prices? Some of his other obscure utterings were A dog is not just for Christmas, it's for Bulgaria. And Nostalgia, it ain't what it generally makes itself out to be, as well as A bird in the hand is an aardvark. Not forgetting his pithy response to a charge of plagiarism. Plagiarism is as plagiarism might be. If it weren't so set upon being that which it may or might not be, it's a bit like comparing apples. As is well known, Robert went on from his humble beginnings to become a well-regarded speechwriter for the Right Honourable Harry Crusher Mackey, the Mayor of Waylaid, and later Robert's local MP. Mackey's maiden speech to Parliament, penned by Rob, broke all the records for length, breadth and levels of tedium induced. Parliamentary stenographers still gasp in fear and awe when shown a copy of the speech. Perhaps Robert's lasting legacy to the country he loves so much and described so badly will be his participation in a sociological experiment designed to discover just why he was so annoyingly dull and obtuse. The researchers hypothesised that the unusual climactic conditions prevalent during Robert's conception and birth may have had some influence upon his personality. The report arising from his research had a large amount of input from Robert before his death and consequently is still being proofread. The expected release date is now sometime in God knows when. Robert Less never married and his only companion in his declining years was the impressionist poet Ewan Steig. Robert died in June 1988 of tenure and various complications. His last words uttered on his deathbed and recorded by Ewan Steig were, O death, where is thy granulated fertiliser? Stephen, I'm really pleased that we've got someone who can be remembered for their ways with language. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Not always the best ways. Memorable ways? Memorable, yes. Okay, Michael, we're going to swing straight into your first piece of the episode. Tell us all about Stan Wallach. Thanks, Stephen. This is my first paper for today, and I'm pleased that it's on a person. I've been on a bit of a jaunt lately looking at events and geographic features. It's nice to get back to the meaty subject of biography of notable apocryphal Australians. And Stan Wallach was born in 1959 in Launceston, Tasmania. His parents were itinerant door-to-door stockbrokers and his childhood was spent travelling around the state of Tasmania, rarely settling in one place for long. Stan became angry at this lack of security in his life and at the age of 25 ran away from home. His parents promptly bought a house and settled in Hobart without letting him know where they'd gone. Embittered by this and affected by what he saw as a rootless upbringing, Stan embarked on a journey for spiritual fulfilment in 1985. 
He spent some days as a Trappist monk, finally objecting to the haircut, then tried in quick succession the life of a Buddhist monk, a Filipino faith healer, a chess grandmaster and a singing nun. None seemed to click. Finally, while on an unplanned wilderness trek evading creditors, Stan was struck by an overwhelming epiphany. The majestic trees, the humble undergrowth, the smelly but necessary by-products of forestry decomposition, all these forcefully brought home to him how little he belonged there. This revelation was brought home even more forcefully when he was finally rescued by the tanned and hearty members of the local bushwalking club. Back in the city, Stan Wallach feverishly set about what he saw as his calling. Modern society, he felt, had abandoned its roots and needed healing. His belief, promulgated on many street corners before he was finally arrested for harassing passers-by, was that many humble items possessed powers unsuspected by those blinded by everyday life. His quest was to right this wrong and bring modern society back to harmony. In his first self-published track, The Healing Powers of Plastic, Stan Wallach listed many of the spectacular qualities of this much overlooked material. PVC, soothes the soul, excellent for aiding digestion, wards off jealous thoughts. PVA, gives clarity of thought, a calming influence when worn close to the skin, tunes the aura. HDPE, enlivens the spirit, energises the car, lightens the way. Polystyrene, squeaks when you sit on it. Heartened by seeing his work in print, Stan launched himself as a newest age guru. He opened a shop in Burnie called Poly Miracles, recorded an album of music played entirely on PVC plumbing pipe and plastic garbage bins, according to him, to soothe the soul and open the doors of perception, and advocated the legalisation and promulgation of artificial food colours and flavours. When told that artificial food colours and flavours were already legal, he was overjoyed. He charted what he saw as the positive harmonics gained by including them in one's diet, particularly looking at what he called companion colours and flavours, those that work together to create spiritual wellness. His chart of harmonies and inner vibrations that food additives could bring was legendary. Here's a sample. Riboflavin 5-phosphate. Peace. Tartrazine, bravery in the face of criticism. Indanthrene Blue RS, self-knowledge, particularly about directions. And not forgetting Cryptoxanthin, the ability to see one second into the future, sometimes. However, Stan Wallach broke down when the listing of the names of artificial colours and flavours on food packaging was changed in the late 1980s to a dry and sterile number coding. He felt that the magic of the substances was tied up in their evocative names. The mystical cadences of tartrazine, dimethyl blue and anatto were vital parts of their power. He died two weeks later a broken man. He was buried, as per his instructions, wrapped in cling film and sealed in a wheelie bin. Yet another unsung visionary. And yet another guru, prophet. We seem to be coming across a lot of them in our apocryphal studies. 
Stephen, your second piece, I understand you're covering two people, partners in some way? Yeah, I've got a funny feeling this is the first time we've done this, a, a sort of a duo of people. Mm. Um, mm. This is all about the Great Inland Desert Expedition of 1860, led by explorers Charles O'Rourke and Finbar Agarn. Obviously, Australia is a big country and the early white explorers had their work cut out for them when it came to time to map this huge great brown land with bits of green around the edges. Charles O'Rourke and Finbar Agard were two members of the Perth social elite. One night, while supping at the Victoria Club in central Perth, the pair began discussing their belief that a great inland desert was located in the heart of the continent. Popular opinion at the time spoke of a great inland sea in the same region, but O'Rourke and Agard found that they both favoured the desert idea. They were ridiculed by the other members of their club and challenged to put their theories to the test. Thus, on the 18th of October, 1860, the two explorers set out from Perth Botanical Gardens. The expedition comprised six wagons, eight camels, sufficient foodstuffs for eight months, sundry camping supplies, weapons, ammunition, and a large oak dining table and a dinner gong. 19 men in total began the trek, although one had to pull out almost straight away as it left the gas on at home. The expedition made camp that first night in Rockingham, where exhausted after only travelling 47 kilometres, they realised they'd been going in the wrong direction. The next morning, they hit upon the idea of keeping the ocean behind them, which would force them to keep heading inland. The expedition set up camp for the next night, some 15 kilometres east of Perth which was at least the direction they were meant to be heading in. It was at this point that O'Rourke and Agarn let go eight of the men accompanying them, mostly due to the cries of, are we there yet, and partly due to the fact that the men realised they wouldn't be getting paid for the trip. Equipment broke down, wagons broke down, men broke down. It was an arduous, perilous and soul-destroying trip. It was only the fierce determination of the expedition leaders that kept the whole enterprise going. Finally, some three years after leaving Perth, O'Rourke and Agarn realised that the reason men were dying was due to the severe lack of water that they had experienced for the last few weeks. And it was then that the truth of the matter hit them. Here, right beneath their feet, was the fabled desert that they'd dreamed of. Without pause, the two doughty explorers roused the remaining men of the expedition. They explained that the desert they sought was right beneath their feet and... With gusto, each man began digging to reach it. Harbouring some reservations about the logic of this, one John Lindell hung back a bit from the digging and tried to work out why he felt troubled. According to his memoirs published sometimes later, Lindell was just about to voice his concerns about digging through what was obviously desert to find desert when the Earth's crust gave way and the entire expedition, apart from Lindell, plunged into the vast reservoir of water that is the Great Artesian Basin and drowned. Lindell was found by some Indigenous hunters and taken back to Perth, where he lived the rest of his days. In a strange footnote to history, an American writer came across the memoir of John Lindell and read it entranced by the sheer romance of the foolhardy yet daring expedition of O'Rourke and Agarn. He decided that this story needed to be told to the world, but instead... He just used the surnames of the explorers in the new TV comedy show he was writing. Stephen, the way we are bringing to light, we're uncovering 
these forgotten explorers certainly starts to balance some of the tales that we have of the famous explorers. We're learning about explorers who really should have looked for another job. (laughs) An awful lot of explorers do crop up. And I wonder if it's because they have this desire, this need to do stupid things. Now then, Michael, we've got a place instead of all the people that we've, we seem to be having today. Yep, we do, Stephen. It's, I suppose it's really like a big object in a place, and that's the Tankalanka Drive-In. The small town of Tankalanka in far southwestern New South Wales contains a petrol station, general store, a post office, an Anglican church and an artist supply shop. It is home to 80 residents and is the centre of a thriving irrigation area specialising in citrus crops. It was also the home of the Tankalanka Drive-In, an important part of the local community since its construction in 1960. With space for 200 cars and a special area for semi-trailers, trucks and combine harvesters, it was quickly a focal point for families from all over the district. Founders and on-site managers for 25 years, Les and Myrtle Evans, ran the drive-in with a mixture of benevolence and authoritarianism. Their hamburgers with the lot were a staple for hundreds of teenagers, while Myrtle had an uncanny knowledge of automobile suspension systems, allowing her to detect thousands of youths who thought to avoid paying by concealing themselves in the boot. Despite the attraction of air-conditioned picture theatres as close as Mildura, Vic, some 120 kilometres away, the Tankalanka drive-in thrived through the 1960s and 1970s. In 1972, it was even the site of a wedding, when Boris Talbot and Frieda Nichols were married next to the children's playground. The happy couple had met during the interval of a Julie Andrews musical double feature in 1966, uh, Mary Poppins and the Sound of Music, and chose to tie the knot at the scene of their six-year romance. Even with the home video boom in the 1980s, the driving continued to sell out every weekend. In 1985, Les and Myrtle Evans retired and sold the drive-in to Jim Attila Cassidy, a local crossword puzzle fanatic. Locals looked forward to a continuation of the proud tradition of the Tankalanka drive-in, but Jim Cassidy had ideas. At first the changes were tiny. A slight price ride, expected. Less meat in the hamburgers, also expected. A slightly smaller screen, unexpected. Then, gradually, Jim Cassidy started tampering with the program. The double feature was replaced by a main feature and local shorts. While the customers didn't complain, many were puzzled by the choice of shorts, all shot on Jim Cassidy's own video camera. The first short was a semi-documentary about Jim's backyard. The second, a searing expose of the state of Jim's nature strip, unmown for four weeks at the time. After the success of the premiere showing of the local Tankalanka film industry, Jim Cassidy was chuffed enough to throw his screen open to the public. His aim, as stated in a plaque on the wall of the Tankalanka Drive-In snack bar, was to make the town a centre of the short film world. Every Saturday was to be festival night. The only proviso was that the subject of the shorts had to be broadly domestic. 
The declaration met with some resistance, but soon people were flocking to the Tankalanka Drive-In to show their shorts in public. Musicals based in the front paddock, character pieces featuring Aunt Dot, nature studies following the life cycle of the carp, cinema verite reenactments of the disaster that was the Rasmussen family reunion, well, the variety was immense. But head and shoulders above the rest stood a talent that was as stellar as it was unexpected, Susie Boone. Susie was the youngest daughter of Ted and Shirley Boone, and while a competent student at school, she had shown no flair for anything. That was until someone put a video camera in her hand. Then she became inspired. Artistic framing shots were her bread and butter. Narrative pacing was second nature. The intimate use of the lap dissolve became her hallmark, while she was one of the few filmmakers ever to use the joggle effect of the handheld camera with discretion. Susie Boone could turn the tritest of subjects into poignant, moving, life-changing moments of scarifying truth. The trouble was, she and Jim Cassidy, the drive-in owner, didn't get on. Jim called her pretentious. She called him old and wrinkly. He said she lacked substance. She said he smelled. There was only one solution, a boxing match. On 19th of October 1985, a ring was constructed at the Tankalanka Drive-In. Under the illumination of the snack bar and the children's playground, with a crowd of hundreds watching, Susie Boone and Jim Cassidy slugged it out over five gruelling rounds. In the end, Susie Boone walked straight into a desperate Cassidy uppercut and was knocked out. The next day, Susie Boone left the district and headed for Sydney, where she carved out a lucrative career making TV commercials. Jim Cassidy, sensing the loss to the district, sold the drive-in to Hermia Sinclair, who ran it into the ground. The Tankalanka drive-in closed in 1987. Ah, the romance of a bygone era. Why are boxing matches still the go-to method to determine disagreements? Disagreements in the artistic field? Hmm, We need to bring it back. Yeah, I think so. It'd be good TV. Now, Stephen, I think you may have mentioned the subject of your next paper last episode. I did indeed, Michael. This uh, piece is all about Edward Gilby, who was an RAF, a Royal Air Force pilot, born 1910 and died sadly in 1982. Edward Gilby was born in Deary Mee, New South Wales, in 1910. He had a pleasant childhood, growing up on a farm with parents Harold and Amelia and his sister Sissy. From an early age, Edward was fascinated by flight. He often used to watch the sparrows flit in and out of the barn and he always wondered if one day he'd be able to do the same. On the day that he tried, he broke both arms and a leg when he plummeted from the barn roof. Undeterred, the young Gilby then studied the anatomy of the birds he'd been watching. He found dead birds and examined their skeletal remains. He rode into the nearest town and spent the days engrossed in books about birds. He came to the conclusion that the thing that all flying birds had in common was the fact that they had beaks. Thus it was that armed only with a false beak, he again plummeted from the roof of the barn. A chance meeting with Lawrence Hargrave, the Australian inventor who flew a box kite contraption 16 feet from the ground, meant absolutely nothing to the young Edward and he kept jumping off the barn and breaking various bones. 
Once he actually thought he'd achieved the miracle of flight, but that was simply concussion-induced hallucinations. Then, one momentous day, a plane flew over the Gilby farm. Transfixed, young Edward ran after the machine, so he obviously wasn't transfixed at all. He eventually saw it land and quizzed the pilot about the dream of flight. Young Edward was hooked. He learned to fly, and after some time, he learned the other way of landing. This was the one that didn't lead to broken bones, and that was when the world changed for Edward Gilby. Edward learned how to fly the safe way. By 1939, war clouds were gathering. Edward heard the call of the mother country, and in a fit of patriotic fervour, he bid farewell to his life in rural Australia and caught one of those ever-so-convenient tramp steamers to England. Gilby completed his Royal Air Force training at Cranwell, where, as an already trained pilot who knew a few different ways to land, he was identified as fighter pilot material. He was trained to fly hurricanes. The Hawker Hurricane was a good, solid workhorse of a plane, but Gilby had fallen in love with the sleek, beautiful machine that was the Spitfire. He forsook a posting to 301 Squadron in order to learn to fly spits, as they were called. Just as he was about to be posted to a Spitfire Squadron, the Spitfire Mark IV was released, and Edward was, was recalled to learn to fly it. Sadly, this meant he missed flying in the famous Battle of Britain. He was then called upon to learn to fly the powerful Hawker Tornado, and then the even more powerful Hawker Typhoon. Then the supercharged Spitfire Mark VII was released, and Gilby was required to complete some training on this new, very different aircraft. Just as he was about to be shipped off to the continent to bring the fight home to the Germans, some American aircraft were released to the RAF by the American Air Force as part of their land-lease program, and Edward was called in to complete specialist training on these aircraft, which were all left-hand drives. These included the Bell Aerocropper and the Mustang. By 1945, Edward was just about to complete his basic training and was to be posted to Europe when the Meteor jet fighter was released. And just as Edward completed his training on this modern marvel of an aircraft, peace broke out and Edward was sent back to Australia, a confused and frustrated, although superbly trained, man. He died tragically when he fell off the roof of the barn. Here's somebody who was trained to within an inch of their life, I'd say. I know, and the, and the tragedy, he, he just never got to use that training. Mm, frustration must have set in. Well, I think some did question how he died. Oh, okay. All right, that could be another episode sometime. Possibly, possibly. I did sort of see this one up on the whiteboard and, and I actually thought perhaps somebody was having trouble spelling this gentleman's name, but you'll tell us all about him. Yes, I will, Stephen. This this paper took a little bit of preparation. Well, all of them take preparation, but this one took particular preparation. And this is the life of Zoltan Feshfeshfesh. Zoltan Feshfeshfesh is remembered for a number of things and fortunately forgotten for many more, the courts being as overcrowded as they are these days. He is most famous for being the visionary, the entrepreneur, the genius, whose vision was to bring marsupial cheese into reality. Zoltan Feshfeshfesh was born as most people are. In his case, it was in 1962, in the thriving but isolated Western Australian town of Bluffers Bluff. 
His mother was Ingrid Agland, once famous for pinning Raging Roy Raglan two falls out of three. And Harry, fesh, 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 an itinerant itinerant who knew three knock-knock jokes. Inspired by a deep-seated love of his country and all it had to offer, after leaving school, Fesh 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 initially tried to make and market a line of food that truly went back to basics, with his Good Earth range of food being based entirely on dirt. Different soils from across the continent, carefully curated by Fesh 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 himself, were combined with herbs, spices and oils to create gourmet patties that found very few fans. He then tried a line of crisp bread made from waste timber. Una Ramp, in the Australian Food Bible, described them as good-looking with a lovely grain but inedible and a danger to teeth. Not wanting to make the same mistake, Fesh Fesh Fesh's next effort was an all-in strategy, starting with an ingredient that was indisputably edible. Milk. Inspired by the upcoming Sydney Olympics, Fesh 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 decided that a line of good, wholesome, totally Aussie marsupial cheese was bound to be a winner. He had a vision of Echidna Edom, Wombat Wensleydale, Bandicoot Brie and Greater Glider Gloucester, all extolling the virtues of dairy produce and our wide brown land. In Fesh Fesh Fesh's private journal found after his disappearance, he admitted that the main difficulty would be actually getting the milk from the wild pouched animals. But that was a bridge he'd cross when he had to. Far more important matters needed attention first. So, throughout 1998 and 1999, he was working 20 hours a day to meet his self-imposed deadline of the opening of the Sydney Games. Fesh 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 threw himself into marketing and design, with months of effort going into a logo. Once the marsupial cheese logo was finalised, it was onto the T-shirt, the baseball cap, the polo shirt and the fleecy jacket, and he gave each of them painstaking attention. Feverishly, Fesh 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 went on to design marsupial cheese yo-yos, slap bands, gum boots and cheese boards, plus something that looks surprisingly like a branded prototype fidget spinner, well before the craze of 2017. Fesh 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 spent weeks working solely on a mascot. He had so many possible cute, friendly marsupials to choose from, it was surprising in the end when he eventually chose the relatively unknown Betong, cartooning it up to become Betty Betong, the face of marsupial cheese. While still cute, as most small hopping marsupials are, Betty Betong didn't have the same immediate recognition factor as, say, a quokka or a koala. And so this was a typical Fesh 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 mistake, of which more were to follow. Fesh 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 established a web presence, which would look crude today, of course, with jaunty self-written music blaring as soon as one entered the site. Betty Betong is front and centre with those sublime artist conception drawings of the planned marsupial cheesery and amusement park that Fesh 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 had planned for the future. Betty Betong can't be blamed for the ultimate failure of marsupial cheese. That came from the impossibility of getting any milk at all from marsupials to feed into the large-scale industrial cheese-making facility that Fesh 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 had mortgaged his house to finance. 
the entire enterprise collapsed one month before the opening of the Sydney Olympic Games in September 2000. Fesh 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 was pursued for outstanding debts, false representation and trading while really, really insolvent. After the financial and personal fiasco that was marsupial cheese, in 2002 Fesh 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 headed for the sub-Antarctic islands with the aim of developing a line of pinniped cheese using the milk of seals and sea elephants and looking forward to the tangy, fishy element that that would bring. He has not been heard of since. Now, I wouldn't mind betting that some enterprising dairy products company actually runs with this idea once they hear this podcast. Well, we're putting it out there for people and we're happy if they would take it up. Uh, are we, though? <laughs> yes, maybe uh, Maybe we need to work out some sort of a licensing arrangement. <laughs> it's our intellectual property. Well, in some senses, some probably legal senses. We'll get our legal people onto it. They've been hard at work on various rights issues, I think we can say, without revealing too much. But we'll, we'll put it on their desk. Well, speaking of which, in today's mailbag... The mail that I had I had uh, selected, I've actually decided that I want to steal. I don't want to. Steal, I want to um, research it some more and perhaps use it for future future episodes. So, okay. So I haven't really got a mailbag as such. Well, I have one item. If you'd like me to swing into that, yeah, yeah. By all means, let's have a have a listen to that. This comes from Gertrude Benz of Yolux, Northern Territory. And she wants us to look into the running of the Golden Slipper Stakes in 1996. She's sure something amazing went on there. Probably something fishy. And she assures us it's not just because she lost $20 wagering on the race. All oh, right. Okay. Now, I do have one last thing, though. I have taken a leaf out of your book. And when you in your introductory remarks, you have a quick tour around the offices and and pick up and examine various bits and pieces that are, have formed parts of stories in the past. And I thought we'd have a, I'd have a quick look at the, the Apocryphal Australia Library. Oh, what a good idea, Stephen. It hadn't even crossed my mind. No, no, and, and, and I think some people might be surprised to learn that we actually use hard copy books for our research. We have accumulated a number of tomes over the years. That's right. And those same people, I think, might be a little surprised to find out that there's a lot of inf- misinformation and outright untruths on the internet. So we don't rely just on that for our information. We are wary customers, all right? True. Anyway, I wanted to find out what books we, we do rely on for our general research, and I got Leanne, our librarian, to print me out a list of the top 10 books taken out by our researchers. Leanne's a treasure, and perhaps we'll get her to come on sometime as a special guest. But, Stephen, tell us more about these books. Okay, the top 10 books as taken out by our researchers and and ourselves, of course, are, and in order of of number of times taken out, I suppose, that that we would put them in. I'm not going to do it 10 to 1. I'm going to go from the top and work down. Number one, Cads, Villains and 'er Ne'er-Do-Wells of Australia, A Field Guide to Australian Politicians by H.R. Munro. Mm. Number two, What's That by Jimmy Rundle. Number three, Who's That? again, by Rundle. And and number four, Where's That? The third in Rundle's series. I think it's safe to say that we are Rundle fans here at Apocryphal Australia. Great books, great books. Number five, 
Animals, Plants and Minerals of Australia and the City of Boise, Indiana, the USA, which seems very, very specific, but very useful. That's by J.G. Cleek. Coming in at number six, People, I Hate Them All by Shirley St. George. Number seven, Excuse Me, Is This Your Dog? by Graham Greene, but I've got a sneaking suspicion that that's not the Graham Greene, that the spelling of Graham is, is different. Number eight, What State Is That? A Field Guide to Australia by Harmon and Keith. Number nine, The New Apocrypha by John Sladek. And finally, uh, an interesting one, number number 10, coming at number 10, is Grieg's New Atlas of Australia, which is an interesting book that attempts to argue that all of the places in Australia should be numbered rather than named, according to a, a formula that the, the author has supplied. For, in, in the book, as an example, Melbourne is, is named 1,212, for instance. Byron Bay, because I know a lot of people would wonder about this, is number one because it's on the most easterly point of the mainland. But it's a formula that's hard to understand as the place named number two is the town of Jonty in western New South Wales. And frankly, I don't really know why anyone has borrowed it. It's an eccentric approach there, Stephen, but that's probably why it's found a place in the apocryphal Australia Library. In the vast library that we, we, we maintain. Well, Stephen, I think that's been a jam-packed episode, but it's time for us to wind up. So, my name is Michael Pryor. My name is Stephen Higgins. And, Stephen, I'm going to grab your bit now and say, don't forget to subscribe, like, comment, tell everybody about Apocryphal Australia. And what would you like to say about social media, Stephen? Have a look at us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and all those wonderful, wonderful places. It's a great way of keeping in touch and communicating if you'd like to go that way. So I'll say goodbye. And farewell. You've been listening to Apocryphal Australia, a podcast dedicated to giving new life to aspects of history in the same way that Dr Frankenstein gave new life to remains that should have stayed where they were. And that's probably a bad analogy, but we don't resile from it. Resile? Us? That's not what we're on about. Frank and fearless explorers of the back blocks and byways of the past. That's what you can count on every episode. So subscribe, set your reminders, get everyone on side and be ready for your next episode of Apocryphal Australia, coming to a listening device near you. So, until then, be kind to yourself and others, okay?